Roddy Yeager to Jagger wants it back. He gets it back and leaves it through for Holby. Oh, it's off the line. It's off the line. What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Off the Line podcast brought to you by Your Football Journal. Uh, this is me, Caleb John, again. And joining me today, like always, are my good friends, George Paulos and Vishnu Ji. How are you doing, guys? Doing terrible, Caleb. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. pretty much the same. <laughs> Well, yeah. You're the only one who's happy after this week. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy after this week. It was a good performance for the boys. But we'll, you know, we'll talk about your games more. There was more drama in those games. Uh, and let's start off with the Merseyside derby. So, George, uh, what are your thoughts on that game? And I want to just start off by uh, what, what do you think about that whole Pickford Van Dyke offside situation? Actually, before before you get into that, because that's such a touchy, dramatic issue, I wanted to start off with the good things from both the teams that happened, and then we'll Fair just enough. then I'll ruin my mood after that. So, okay. if we if we start with Liverpool, you could see right from the off that's like two minutes, three minutes that they were targeting that left hand side and isolate trying to drag Coleman inside. Uh, they they did a really good job of that. They scored in the first three minutes, and they looked very threatening down that left-hand side uh, throughout a lot of the first half and as well in the second half as well, with an overload, uh, Robertson on the overlap, as well as when Mane drags in, drags Coleman in. So that was, that, that had a lot, that paid a lot of dividends, and it could have paid more in my opinion, actually. There was a lot more chances that were created from that side. As well as on the right-hand side, the, a similar thing happened with Henderson also getting in on the right-hand side. Salah trying to isolate Dinia and dragging him inside. And you've got, you can see Henderson moving, playing a little bit more, you know, to a, with a right more tilt, right-hand side tilt. So that creates a little bit more overload on the right-hand side, gives them more numbers, which makes it easier for passing as well as for trying to get under the overlap and to put in crosses in. So a lot of uh, things that we've seen before, but you didn't see Trent pushing as high up. And I think this is more to do with a defensive decision where in, I'm not saying that he didn't throughout the game, but there are, most of the game, you didn't see him getting into those attacking positions that you would see him in other fixtures. Whereas it was more Robertson, which was tasked with that goal of pushing up, getting right to the byline, putting the crosses in. Um, other than that, you saw that Mane, the, when he is in the squad, you can notice the difference, especially when the pressing stand, you, he starts off the press, the, his work rate, and also Salah's work rate during the game was phenomenal. I think they did a very good job in pressing them, pressing everything back line, as well as from, you know, getting in deep to link up the play. And Everton, we... We've said this before about Liverpool's high line and isolating Trent. So that's what happened on the second goal. It was a Hammers uh, through ball in behind Trent. And that was clearly something that they looked to exploit. They wanted to exploit the high line. There was, and that was done through Pickford rather than through the midfield. You saw very, you saw often that Pickford was the one making all these long balls in behind it was just that the quality of these balls was not as good to penetrate the Liverpool defence, even with the defence without Van Dijk. 
And that's where they liked it was. And even when Kavaloon did get the ball, the midfield wasn't tight enough to him to be able to use to, for him to drop it down and for him to link up with the midfield. So that's why you didn't see a lot of Everton chances. But whenever they did get on the break, it did look threatening. And whenever Hamez did cut inside on the left, and he drifted into the center. You can saw, you can see that it was pretty threatening because Hamas is left foot. We all know how good that is. And the crosses that he puts in, I think Richarlison got into the end of one and hit the post. So that was something that Liverpool couldn't contain. Even Godfrey as well in the second half. He also tried to cut inside and ping balls in. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't, go into, it didn't have any fruition. But yeah, though those are the good points that I picked out. Do you guys pick out anything else? Or... Yeah, I felt like right from the off, this was one of the games in which, uh, like, we've seen Hamas, the creator, the his all his attacking attributes. But when playing on the right hand side of a four three three, you obviously have some defensive responsibilities as well, and that is primarily what Liverpool looked to exploit. They knew that Hamas wouldn't track back or wasn't good defensively, so most of their attacks were down the left hand side where Hamas wouldn't track back as much as like Richardson would do. So on the right-hand side, if they wanted to build up play, they had to commit an extra person, which was Henderson, to combine with Salah and Trent on that wing. Uh, but once they did that, a quick switch to the left was always on and Robertson was always in space because Hamas wouldn't track the man. Dukore, though he offered some sort of protection, when overloaded on the other side, being in the center, he'll have to shift as well. And a quick switch always looked threatening. And most of Liverpool's big chances or threatening chances came down Robertson's side rather than the right. And I think this was primarily the reason for that. And Everton mainly tried to play over the press or bypass Liverpool's press rather than play through it and look to find DCL uh, up front as a target man. But I think, as you mentioned, there was not a lot of uh, aerial duels won and there weren't a lot of second balls won by Everton because either Richarlison or Hames weren't close to uh, Calvert-Lewin and Liverpool who had a good amount of control especially in the first half and Everton struggled to create even progress the ball down the midfield they're trying to go long and trying to play in behind which were which they couldn't do very effectively as uh, they would have hoped but again, they came back in the second half and yeah, a bit of drama down the end as well. You might want to talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, let's get into the controversy of this game. Uh, obviously, we know how important Van Dijk is to Liverpool. Uh, so, George, let's first talk about um, how Liverpool will have to cope without Van Dijk for the next, you know, probably the rest of the season. He has to have a surgery done. What do you think that's going to mean for the team? Yeah, we we lost we lost that fixture. I, I know it was like two two on paper, but we we lost it. Uh, I, I don't even think a win, even if we won three two, I would still say we lost that fixture because of injuries to Van Dijk. Um, that long term sustained injury to for leave from a playing point of view. I think from a morale point of view, having defensive frailties and having that confidence in your lack of confidence in your backline has astronomical repercussions because 
Gomez and Matip probably had a sense of security whenever they came on the pitch that they are partnered up with Van Dijk. And I'm sure Robertson and Trent also felt the same thing. And having that presence not there, as well as Addison also being out for about another four to five more weeks, that does have... There's, there's a lot of tension, you can say, with the Liverpool back four. And it ultimately decided our season for us, in my opinion. I think it's very difficult for us to come back. I'm not saying that we don't have quality going forward and in our midfield, but I think from a, there's a lot more to football than just playing the game. And that's, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a mental aspect to this as well. I think it's going to be very difficult to overcome. I think if they, if we do manage to do it and we manage to get something from this season, some, some sort of silver, I think that's a real testament to Klopp and being able to instill that confidence. But we'll have to see. As regards to how it happened, I am so, so disappointed. I'm disappointed with the refereeing. I think the officiating in that game was terrible. I think Michael Oliver, if we, got, if we forget VAR, Michael Oliver had a clear view of that. Okay. He saw how dangerous that was. And I know it's in the rule books that if you, if it's a bad tackle and if it's offside, then it's not, you, you, you don't have to give the foul. But this was career-ending. There's a possibility that Van Dijk doesn't come back from this and be the player that he is. That's basically, that translates to his career being over. And for what it was, it was such a reckless challenge that he got away with. I feel Michael Oliver allowed this to happen when we saw Richarlison tackle Thiago. He allowed it to escalate in such a way that the Everton players had a feeling that they could do whatever they wanted and not get booked. He set that tone. And for Adami Derby, I think that was the worst thing that you could possibly do. And VAR was an absolute joke. If VAR could not look at that uh, uh, Van Dyke incident and not deem it worthy enough, not even for a second check, leave red card, not even worthy enough for a second check, but were able to correctly in double quotes uh, see that Mane was offside. It just proves that this either this technology is being used so wrongly, or there is it's there's a lot of I, I wouldn't want to say corruption and conspiracy because that make that makes me sound like a really poor loser. But it 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 brings to the question that are are officials being fair? And it is it's a very human nature to be biased. And is that kind of bias, visible bias supposed to be allowed in a football match? I don't know. Maybe, so I, I don't want to talk about this too much because my opinions are very skewed. I want to hear what you guys thought about it. And because that might offer a little bit more context. for. No, I, I thought it was a horror tackle. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're offside or not. Uh, the referee, the referee should have gone and taken a second look at it. It's, it's an absolute shambles. What the refereeing community is doing now to the Premier League. I think we've spoken about VAR and all these problems every single episode that we have done this. It can be the preview or the review. Like we do talk about it. So, and I'm sure a lot of people share your same opinions, George. Okay, let's say, yeah, fine. It's offside. Cool, cool, cool. No worries there. Uh, even that offside kind of look pretty suspect. Not going to lie. And then, but the tackle, the type of tackle that Jordan Pickford went for, the double leg, he was in the air, he was flying and starts showing, he catches it. Like, 
seriously, you get away with that scot free just because it was offside. What if he visibly broke his leg? Like it was crazy enough that Van Dijk walked away from, uh, you know, an ACL injury. He just walked. Imagine his leg snapped or something. Is he still going to be like it's not a? Uh, there's no repercussions because it was offside. This is. It just doesn't make any sense, does it, Krishna? Yeah, I agree with you that like uh, if if you can make a tackle like this and get away without any punishment just because it was offside a couple of seconds ago then the and if that's what the law says which i think it does we need to relook at that law because you can't endanger the people playing the game because of a offside decision because as we as you guys have touched upon earlier it could be a career ender it had the potential to be and uh, this is something pickford has done before in the sense that his one on one technique is very bad that he has to come in with his leg if i think it was against tottenham uh, the game against tottenham when delhi ali was thrown goal he was offside again i think but pickford again went through with both of his legs so i would like to see a retrospective punishment for something like this because it is sort of violent conduct but i wouldn't say that a conspiracy against liverpool but again this is something that like if there's no law or if the law doesn't support us then you need to take a second look at the law i would also say there's no conspiracy against liverpool or any other team it's just that the refereeing body is for lack of better word they just shit at the moment aren't they like they just make so many mistakes now this handball situation is yeah so with so with the new rules apparently the uh, so there's an amendment to the handball rules where now the hand or the arm starts from the sleeve of the shirt and i think that's where they draw the do the line for the mane offside and which again is pretty contentious but yeah so they they're falling back on the rules in most of these cases and say okay this is what it is and that's how it should be but if things like that are not to be done in the future we need to or whoever's concerned need to relook at the law correctly if i'm wrong uh, the original offside rule that you've all seen growing up is if any part of your body which can score a goal is beyond the last defender then it's offside right but if if uh, let's say mane had you know shouldered in that goal from above his sleeve would they have given it i don't think so by rules they should so if you but they don't i mean like in the arsenal west ham game there was a cross coming in and it gabriel on the top of the shoulder or towards the beginning of the arm which is not given as a handball and that's when i looked at the rules and i was made aware of that this was the change and this is going to be there we haven't really seen a goal like from an attacking point of view and i think in the chelsea game where werner scored the second goal his first touch was around this region top of the shoulder which is again not called so i think they would have to let goals like those stand if they're going to follow this uh, law to the dot you know what my issue in all of this is it's that i don't think david coots who was the ma- the vr official could say with 100% certainty that mane was offside i don't think we have the technology to do that right now 
And if you cannot make a decision, an offside call using VAR with hundred percent conviction, then I don't. You shouldn't use it. Yeah. You can't use it. You have to then go and default to the on-field linesman's refer uh, decision. And this is something that's there in sports. Uh, American football uses this. They have video assistant referees, and they if they can't call a decision using the technology, they will default to the on-field referee's decision. And I think we have to do that in the in this sport because there have been calls that are too tight to make with the technology, and the technology hasn't reached there yet. And what it results to is it results to just poor officiating, and it will spur arguments that and spur discussions that shouldn't happen in a game which is supposed to be fair. And it's the the easier thing to do is just to put up your hands and say like I I don't know I can't make this call hence. We default to the original way of doing this, and that was on-field linesmen. And I think we should do something. I think the sport should evolve into something like that. I know that brings an area of subjectivity into it, but at least then, if the VAR says that I, I don't know, then it'll ultimately go back to the linesman's decision, and then that will also empower linesmen to not just, you know, not put up their flags, but their their opinion also counts into the decisions. Whereas right now, I think if a linesman gets something wrong, I don't think he cares too much because he knows that VAR will overturn him or save him, let's say. And I think that it's important to keep this practice going of having on-field linesmen because otherwise you don't need them, do you? You can just use VAR for everything, and the technology can evolve in such in that that kind of direction. But I think that's wrong. I think we should always have on-field linesmen, and I think their opinions and their decisions should also be valid. as the game evolves as well i don't think they should ever be replaced yeah and I, another thing that's there i think it's there in american football is that your as a viewer or as a player or as a coach like your or when you're watching the match you you can hear what the officials are talking about so that gives you more clarity on the decision made and why that decision was made so when we're like looking at the big foot tackle or even the offside decision there there are conversation ongoing between the var officials and the on field referees so in american football i think they like you can hear them talking so basically like what we're trying to figure out here or after the match you get a clear idea what the officials are trying to figure out and like that's that that gives you more clarity on the decision made whether it's right or wrong i think that should be something that we can bring in football as well Yeah, definitely. That is actually a really good point. Leaves out all the uncertainty of how these guys are thinking, right? And sometimes, my goodness, they are just—it's just horrible sometimes, and it ruins. It absolutely ruins the spectacle of the game, like the Merseyside derby. You know, like the whole mood after Van Dyke went was just shocking because you just knew that any other decision in this game is just going to be screwed. So. uh i'm just like totally done with the year since its inception uh into the league like i said before i think it should have just been in cup competitions and the league will sort it out itself we've had this system where okay goal line technology i think everybody can say that that's that's proper technology it works and, except uh, except in the sheffield except in, the, except in that one yeah <laughs> and 
That was just once, though, right? Like since it's come yeah, out. I, I was so surprised that they are weird and even step in there. I'm, I'm so exactly. Confused. It's so. It doesn't make any sense. They come. They jump in uh, when they feel like and jump out when they feel like. Like it doesn't make any sense. So get get the shit out of the uh, league. Let it just go back to normal organic English football, and let it sort itself out. Keep it for cup competition, so we don't have, you know, sometimes these offside decisions can. You know, knock a team out, right? It's going to make make it a way worse situation there. So that's my opinion. I would think like that would be the way moving forward. Yeah, but the weird thing is the VAR is in like being applied in other leagues as well in Italy, in Germany. But we don't see so many controversies there, or at least maybe because I don't follow them as much as I do in EPL. But like it looks to me from a from an outsider's perspective that. There's a lot more problems in the English game regarding the application of VAR as compared to other leagues, which is weird. So there's the, clearly the, a right way. There's clearly a better way, at least. I think in, in, England is notorious for having really poor officials. Uh, yeah. That's why you don't see yeah. them in international competitions all that much. And I think it, that's just due to the FA being so lenient with the stuff that officials get away with and having no no punishment whatsoever. having skewed or biased or you know wrong decisions and that's and it all boils down to that it boils down to the fa not being able to mold and grow proper uh, unbiased and fair officials and if you're not going to have an institution which you know supports that sort of regime and that sort of uh uh officiating then you're just you, you're never going to the game is never going to improve so Okay, so I guess we've spent a lot of time talking about this game and the problems. Let's uh, swiftly move on to the next game. Chelsea versus the Saints. Uh, the Germans are coming. The Germans are coming. But then, <laughs> uh, fucking Southampton pulled it out of the bag. Vishnu, do you want to take it away? Yes. Uh, it was a very disappointing game from, a, from at least any Chelsea fans' perspective, and uh, I can't. in good conscience say that we deserved to win because i mean like saints deserved at least the point and it was an overall bad performance from chelsea and I, what like, went wrong for chelsea though like i didn't personally watch the game but when i was checking out the score 3 0 up against the saints everyone's thinking it's going to be even more for them oh. yeah so in the first half we were particularly dominant offensively and we raced into a 2-0 lead and then as usual we lost control of the game towards the end of the first half and then they equalized 2-2 we came back 3-2 and in the end they equalized so uh, it's you can look back at the game or just the goals and say that it was down to individual mistakes as there seems to be quite a lot for chelsea especially in the back line in the season uh there was a comedy of errors from both zuma and kepa leading up to the second southampton goal but i don't want to go too deep into that because those are individual mistakes you can't plan for them and hopefully as the season grows and players uh mm-hmm. can get them out of their game but stylistically or from a system point of view there was a lot of the same problems that we see for chelsea under lampard in the beginning of this season and in last season which have still not been solved so which is actually worrying for me 
as now it's been more than a season for lampard with chelsea and sure there are new players coming in they will try, take time to adapt and get the system get familiar with the system and each other and that is expected but the system that he's trying to employ or the style that he's trying to have this chelsea team play have a lot of weaknesses and against the bigger opposition we'll get torn apart even if we can't get a result against teams like southampton or west brom we surely won't be able to uh, beat the champions league clubs or even the big premier league clubs so a couple of issues that i see in the system are that uh, when we press as a team so there is no so there is no pressing trigger basically what that means is usually a team when it tries to press there is a trigger for it so it might be a pass on to a full back or a heavy touch from a center back or a pass in towards the uh, central midfield where you try to converge and press or employ a man oriented press to win the ball back but this chelsea side tries to go for a man oriented press all the time there is no cover shadows there is no pressing triggers and they seem to just chase the ball every time and to make matters worse when we play a 4231 with a double pivot both the central midfielders the tangolo kante and jorginho are also asked to support the press and they go chasing the ball as well now that leaves the defense with absolutely no protection and uh, i i think that we've seen that whenever chelsea turn the ball turn the ball over or they play through the center you suddenly 4v4 against the chelsea defenders and that makes it seem like the defenders are bad but actually there's no protection in front of them you need you can have one central midfielder maybe jorginho or kante to support the press but the other needs to sit in screen in front of the defense if you have both of them supporting the press then literally there's nobody else to protect your defenders and if you turn the ball over it results in a breakaway and even a goal for the other team and that, and to ma- make matters worse if you look at any of the other big teams who play a high pressing style whether you take city or liverpool you can always see that their defensive line is pretty high so they're round about halfway when they're attacking and it's because they are trying to make the pitch compact so that you can press effectively you can't press the whole of the pitch so you need to try and make the spaces compact and press to win the ball back and if you can't press it's okay to fall back into shape but chelsea don't play with a high defensive line the defense sits back and the midfield and forward lines press up front so the gap between the midfield and the defensive lines is so high that any balls in behind the front players result in a very high quality chance for the opposition and this has been there from the first game against united uh in lampard's first last game in charge last season yeah you see <coughs> that chelsea are good going forward and they lose the ball and suddenly united are counter attacking and there's literally nobody else to protect it and it still hasn't been solved so which is weird i think jose mourinho was one of the pundits in that game and he immediately just after the game pointed out that okay this is the problem and they need to fix this and they still have it. so it, it's not just a question of personnel it's also a question of tactics and i'm not certainly saying that lampard should be sacked or all that nonsense but they need to figure this kind of things out because it's not like 
the transfer window is closed you didn't get your defensive midfielder you need to find solutions that's what the manager is there for so yeah i think i think that's the rant done i mean i don't think that was a rant it was actually pretty educational so <laughs> that was a rant which no, i'm not sure how you would actually be when you're really really angry if you can't imagine if you lost the lost the game <laughs> Uh, George, anything to add on this uh, game? I'm not sure if you watched it. No, no, I I, I didn't watch it. The the only thing I wanted did ask Vishnu was was Hasselhotel uh, the man with the plan this week. Uh, in the second half, I would say so. I think second half definitely Lampard was out coached by Hasselhotel. But uh, does that warrant the man with the plan award? George? I mean, I was thinking about it because. I don't think Pep or Arteta is going to get it. I don't think Spurs. No, I think we have to give it to a man like David Moyes, uh, returning oh. from Corona <laughs> with the absolute super sub. Uh, let's actually move into that game and then we'll finish up with the City and Arsenal game. So Spurs three and West Ham three, three second half goals, three goals in the last ten minutes or so. and an absolute firecracker of a strike from uh, Manuel Lanzini Spurs look really good in the first half they look like they were going to score every time they attack but the wheels just keep coming off for Spurs don't they <laughs> yeah. it's funny for us isn't it <laughs> yeah it is it's hilarious for us it's, it's... and uh, the more funny part was i mean the funnier part was when bale came on Boom! Three goals conceded immediately. How was that for a fairy tale, Bale? Yeah, that was that was the most Tottenham Hotspur thing to happen to Tottenham Hotspur club. Yeah, more club. It's it, it's very. I mean, honestly, I feel very sad for Jose Mourinho. I don't think he deserves this. He he deserves to win three nil against West Ham and go home and have a good night's sleep. He he does not deserve to see his team concede three goals in the last twenty minutes. Uh, probably less than that actually to be honest this game was really weird for me i i would say it's weird because so like you said spurs was so good going forward and hurricane was insane even though they they lost three goals they they conceded three goals he was still by far you know man of the match for me and uh, best player on the pitch the work rate he put in i have no idea the instructions that he mourinho has told hurricane but it seems that he's literally wrote an essay and given it to Kane and said you got to do everything and he did he was the false nine where he was linking up play he was the out and out striker when he's getting into the box he was a box to box mid uh, center def- uh, center defensive midfielder at times when he's in the box in Tottenham's box making really crucial uh, blocks and It was it was a really good performance. I don't know how you, I don't know if that's sustainable though to play in 90 minutes of that week in week out. I I'm I'm curious to see how how he's going to evolve as a player what his actual role will be especially in big games. But this was absolutely amazing. It you can see when Tottenham are building up on the when they build up with their center backs. Kane is almost, you know, just after the center circle. and he's got burgoyne he's got son he even has endombele behind him so he's he's sitting that deep and sometimes 
they Spurs look to get the ball over the top with um, Alderweireld. And then the minute that happens, you can see Kane pushing the back line a little bit more. So he's constantly going in, getting deep, pushing up, pushing the back line, depending on which defender has the ball. And that's, that, that, that requires insane work rate to do that, especially on 11-a-side pitch for 90 minutes. So real credit to him. Uh, I think Ndombele, I think we have to... I've said this again in the podcast. I really rate him. I think he's a really good midfielder. Yeah, I thought he had a really good first half as well. He was commanding mm-hmm. that midfield. He was. And the fact... Uh, Ndombele has this the talent of, like, you know, just playing the ball, I mean, playing out from the back. Like, he can run with the ball from deep midfield. And I think that's really crucial. And also, I did say that Hoiberg uh, was, like, an uninspired, uninspirational signing. He looked also really good in that first half. He was, like, uh, you know, cleaning everything up for Spurs so that they could attack on the front foot. And it did result in three goals. Uh, it was really good in the first half. But uh, I think we need to give more credit to West Ham. They came out in that second half with all the intention that they are at least going to get a draw out of this game. And kudos to them. They did it, albeit the own goal. And Lanzini's probably not going to hit a ball like that ever again in his life. So... But you can only score 100% of the goals that I mean, the shots that you take, right? So, you know, there we go. Pick it out. Go for it, Vishnu. Tell us why West Ham deserved to draw that game. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, in the first half, Spurs were clearly uh, creating the better chances, and you touched upon the Harry Kane score, which is sort of insane at how he transformed himself from a world-class striker to now a world-class striker who has a world-class creative creative element to his game with his dropping in deep and playing balls in behind. Now with Bale also coming in, now there are two inside forwards who can make use of that. And Spurs would be dangerous going forward. But again, the issue for Spurs is still in the defence and they've it was highlighted more in the second half where I think most of West Ham's attacks were down that Tottenham right side where Aurier does play. So that's still something of a weak link. Uh, Regulon actually on the other side did a pretty decent job whenever there were attacks down that wing. But towards, uh, especially towards the end of the second half, there were a lot more balls coming in, in from the West Ham left, especially from... Aaron Cresswell into the box and uh, West Ham as a team with Antonio Sushek and who else is there? Keep their centre-backs as well, Ogbona and whoever. Balboina. They're very dominant in the air and Spurs struggle to defend against those kind of aerial threats and balls into the box. They've actually tried to sign a centre-back and they have Joe Rodon coming in from Swansea. It was uh, I think that he's going to slot into the team sooner rather than later because Danson Sanchez looks very shaky. Yeah, I think uh, another point would be to highlight how good Hoiberg was, has been for Spurs this season, especially in the past few games. He's fitted right into that lone holding midfield role in the Spurs 4-3-3. And he does his job really, really well, whether it's just getting into tackles, winning the ball back and recycling possession. He does the simple stuff, but he does it very, very effectively. And that's been a huge help for Spurs. 
for West Ham, Moyes has done a really, really good job. Uh, like, after the first game against Newcastle, we all thought that West Ham were going to be relegated, to be honest. I didn't have much hope for them, especially after that game and the sentiment from the fans regarding the ownership and all that. But in the last few games, they've really pulled it back and now they've added Ben Rama from Brentford coming in on a season loan, who's really, really good. He's very tricky, he's very direct and he has a, he's not afraid to take a shot of goal as well. So that adds an extra dimension to the West Ham attack going forward. So West Ham looked pretty interesting and not as bad as we thought. Actually, they're pretty good, it seems. Yeah, definitely. You know what I don't understand though? I don't understand how Declan Rice is the vice captain of the Mark Noble. I would I would have thought Creswell deserved that armband over. He's I think he's been at the club for about six odd years now, Creswell. So Yeah, but then he's the local lad. He's he has that. I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I mean Creswell's I think Creswell's pretty old as well. He's yeah, he's probably over. I think uh, it's because Declan Rice has that hype, so <laughs> give it to him. But like, it's imagine th- th- this exactly. man is going to leave the club soon. He's probably Chelsea, probably going to snatch him up in the next summer transfer window. And to have a this kind of that kind of a captain, I don't know. It's a bit suspect to me, to be honest. I think that's also a factor, right? Like when you are captain of the club, you are more inclined to stay for longer. Something like that you saw with Grealish as well. He signed a new contract, even though he might be leaving in a couple of years, just to just to ensure that the team is fairly compensated. So yeah, and probably to keep that motivation going for Declan Rice, who we probably all expected to leave this season. However, that didn't manifest. So yeah, giving him that armband would probably give him a sense of purpose for the last few, uh, maybe this last season or the season next. So well. West Ham are on the up and up, aren't they? Even though we thought they were going to get absolutely right this season. I wonder what the West Ham fans think about the team now because the hopes at the beginning of the season were really poor for them. Yeah, I think they should redo that survey now and see what they... Yeah. I think that Bedrava signing should be a really good, you know, uh, wake-up call for them that things are looking... Pretty nice on the transfer front as well. But you know what's going to be a wake-up call? They're playing City next. So. Uh, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, was that's, that's a wake-up call for you. That, that, that's a pretty good wake-up call, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of City, let's yeah. let's look on to the last game that we are reviewing this week. And that is City 1 and Arsenal 0. Benjamin Mendy didn't play George's favorite player. So. Dude, I, I think I think Pep is what, finally listening to our podcast. Dude, yeah, think, about, about time, right? To think, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but he played a back four of Ake, uh, Diaz, Walker, and Cancelo, right? By definition, Ake is a center back, uh, Walker is a right back, and Cancelo is a left back. So he played three players out of position so that... Mendy wouldn't. Or is Cancelo a right back? By the Cancelo right is a right back, but he can also uh, play left back. He can also play right midfield. He can, can do a lot. But of then, things. but then, but on paper, I think he was on even Juventus before this. Where did he play? He played at the right back spot. Okay, okay. Yeah. So then he's not out of position. But he played two players out of position. We let's say he was at Benfica, if I'm not wrong. Oh, he was in no, he was at 
last season he was at Juventus. Cancelo. Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought he was. Ruben Diaz was at Benfica last season. Yeah, but then, like, yeah, I think City bought him from Cancelo. No, he was. No, he was in Benfica in 2015. Then he went to Valencia on loan. Then he signed a permanent deal with Valencia. Went to Inter Milan on loan. Then he had one oh, year yeah. at Juventus. And then City. Yeah, we have the same. They they uh they gave them Danilo Silva, right? They gave him yeah, it was a yeah, swap yeah, deal. Yeah. So okay, so then if if Cancelo was right back for Juventus, then he played basically two players out of position just so that Mendy wouldn't start, and I, I find that beautiful. I think that's that's the kind of justice that Mendy deserves, and I Jeez. I'm so happy that <laughs> finally listened to us. We kicked him off. In a, a preview, we were talking about like Arsenal uh, going at Mendy and trying to expose them. So I'm guessing Pep didn't have to watch uh, or listen to our podcast to figure that out. He's smarter than that. Uh, hopefully, he is listening, which is, uh, yeah, it's not happening though. Shout out, shout out. <laughs> yeah, shout, shout out, out to Pep. <laughs> Pep, I hate your bald head, by the way. <laughs> Pep, I love you. Right. <laughs> okay, so yeah, Pep lover, tell us what you uh, found in this game. You we did speak about this earlier. You were saying that you couldn't figure out the system that they were playing. It was very complex. So why don't you just give us like you know a breakdown of what you saw? Yeah. So uh, you know how Pep does his overthinking BS normally in Champions League games, but also in some Premier League games. I think this was sort of the extreme that he's gone to against his pupil who is Arteta. So they played a really complex system. And even the team selection, as George mentioned, it had some shades of Southgate in it, right? With a few right backs and a lot of center backs, but no left backs. But in terms of tactics, it was a really... Did we just compare Pep and uh, Southgate? No, yeah, in terms of in terms of teams, not in terms of tactics. And uh, so, well, um, so City lined up in sort or were defending in a back four with Cancelo right back, Walker as a right centre back, Ruben Diaz a left left centre back, and Ake as a left back. But uh, which is again weird because Walker doesn't normally play in a back two. He's usually can play in a back three as a right centre back or even as a right back who can invert. But this was certainly the first time I think or I've seen Walker playing in that role. And the main reason for that was probably to deal with Aubameyang and his pace down that left wing. And he contained Aubameyang pretty well, I'd say. Although a couple of times Saka did get in behind them. But in terms of system, uh, City with the ball, they sort of had a back three, which was either Walker, Diaz and Ake. Or when Ake pushed forward, it was Walker, Rodri, and Diaz. And then Cancelo, who was supposed to be playing right back, he would sort of drop into midfield, sort of inverting and playing further forward in midfield. And Bernardo Silva and Rodri as the central midfielders. And uh, then you have Sterling supporting Aguero up top, while Mares and Foden were sort of high and wide on either side. So it was in possession, it looks like a 3-3-1-3 or a 3-3-4, how we want to look at it. And Rodri also did this weird thing where he dropped in between the centre-backs or to a, alongside the centre-backs, get the ball. And if no one was pressing, he'll carry the ball 
into the midfield sort of as sort of a false center back i don't even have a name for this but like that's all that i could see from city because it was incredibly complex the way they played the amount of positional interchanges that they did amongst themselves was really fascinating and incredibly confusing as well but they got the victory so basically i'd say it worked uh for arsenal uh they they sort of played in the usual system the 3-4-3 uh with a back five with tierney playing the left center back because arteta wants a left side of center back uh and saka sort of pushing up towards the midfield and then you have the front three but the weird thing that arteta sort of overthought and did in this game was to drop lacazette and bring in pepe now that means that instead of obameyang playing central i think arteta would like him to cut inside from the left so willian was sort of playing as a false nine and that's not a good position for willian and you saw that in couple of tra- chances that arsenal got in transition where willian was the guy up front and he doesn't make runs into space like a normal striker would he just stands there and drops off the shoulder of the last defender and tries to receive the ball and then turn whereas a striker would be his natural instinct would be to make runs in behind the defensive line and get onto the get onto the ball and try and score so uh, that that was sort of weird for me that he played villian as sort of a false nine there was also times when he interchanged with pepe but still it wasn't that effective neither of them were entirely comfortable playing center field so their best chances came down that left half space uh, or city's right half space behind walker and when there were a bit of com- combination play between saka and obomiang and then saka getting a couple of chances and getting into a couple of good positions but other than that there wasn't much to say like city looked pretty much in control although arsenal had their chances so yeah that's all that i could get pretty uneventful game and you know when we were reviewing i mean previewing it, we expected it to be a bit more uh, you know exciting i would say more goals but uh, city have lost de bruyne for a while how long is that exactly i think, so I think it was confirmed for this week i don't know about the champions league though i i think i think uh, around a month because pep talks yeah. in months he says few months next months it's a bit like fabrizio romano where he talks about time but yeah uh, and i was just having a look at the squad that went out to play against arsenal it's not as scary as it used to be like the in terms of like you know uh, moving forward and attacking they don't have too many options uh, it's just on the bench it was just ferrantorez and delap uh, moving forward so doesn't look that good for city this season doesn't like it doesn't i know what you mean actually when you see this team yeah. you're not you're not scared and then you take de bruyne out of that team and they just look a little flat in it yeah i think that's probably why we don't see a lot of chances as well there weren't that many chances this game uh thing vishnu normally brings this up and it was yeah you could you could tell that's probably why this game was so uneventful it's it's a lot how liverpool used to play last season it's you get a goal and then you just sit back and then you get that scrappy 1-0 win 
and the opposition would probably have a few chances where they could equalize but either your keeper or bad luck tells you like goes against you and you won't be able to equalize so it's it's very it's a lot like liverpool this is how you win games though uh, i think yeah. you kelo you could probably relate to a lot of hard fought ferguson wins over yeah, the years sure. of 1-0 this is what wins you you grind you grind out the result that's absolutely fine but no whenever we used to think about serie over the last few seasons we would always talk about their strength in depth and uh, the fact that they had at least a player or two to cover each position okay yes uh, bernardo silva can do a job in that role but uh, de bruyne is just so influential in that team that when you take him out it just messes up their plan i would say and if aguero is not scoring okay yeah sterling got the goal this time oh, but even then without jesus is delap going to be doing anything probably not i'm not too impressed by his first few performances i mean all of this boils down to the city centurions and the season after that which they won the prominent thing that we also even last season was the amount of chances that they were creating and yeah. i think if i'm not wrong it was the 2018 season which de bruyne was not there so that's the season after centurions they were still creating a lot of chances thanks to bernardo silva thanks to the their midfielders getting into the half spaces and being able to attack with let's say a front five at times and that's just not happening like vishnu said they were attacking with the 3 3 and it, that's just not the city that we're used to and it's it's probably the evolution of pep and he's it's almost it's sad to see but it's just very complex and there were times where i saw bernardo silva linking up the defense with the midfield so rodri's ahead of him so he's playing a more deeper role than rodri and that's just not where bernardo plays that's 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 not where you see have seen bernardo silva ever ever so bernardo silva so it's It's a bit weird. They went to their infamous double pivot, I think, when Aguero came off. And I know Vishnu loves to talk about how how shit that formation is, and how there's zero creativity when they do play that. Um, so it, it, I think, one of the key things with that Centurions team was that everyone had a role, and they knew how to fit into the system with the role that they were given. So you got Fernandinho as a screen. They were playing the four-three-three. You've got Aguero up top. You've got Sterling. You've got Mares. Sometimes you've got Sane as well on the left. So everyone knew what they had to do, and he was playing to everyone's strengths. But now I feel that he's trying to change things up, and while changing things up, he's playing people and players in positions that they're not really comfortable. So you saw Mares play a false nine against Leeds. Don't think Mares. If you give him an op, if you ask him, I don't think he'd ever want to play false nine. It's probably the same way how William played false nine. We asked this game as well. So I think it's this is the evolution of Pep, and fingers crossed. I think mine and Caleb's fingers crossed that this is the decline of Pep. So <laughs> Hell yeah. So eventually you can eventually you can get outclassed by the other Premier League teams and hopefully. exit from england but you know i do expect another sabbatical as he called it after oh <laughs> like yeah. oh if they just get knocked out of the champions league soon then we can expect a sabbatical i think before that there'll be a messi there'll be a messi reunion oh, and no. then, and then he'll tear it up and then he'll probably go on sabbatical 
So then whatever, I can live with that. Yeah, then we can at least give the credit to Messi. And we can at least give the credit to Messi. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we've, you know, gone to all the important games of this week. Like, I think we should wrap this up now. But do you have any final thoughts before, you know, our next podcast is going to be the review of the Champions League. Any, you know, games that you're looking forward to in the Champions League? Yeah, Caleb, do you want to let everyone know what our agenda is going to be? Yeah, I think the agenda is going to be. Yeah, so the agenda is going to be we're going to talk about uh, PSG and United. Huge game there. Probably going to get smashed, but we, we you know, try our best. Um, we're going to be looking at the Chelsea game as well. Vishnu, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, <laughs> did, did you hear that? So what was that? I was that a ghost? That's a ghost. We are ghost hunters now. Welcome to the ghost hunters podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Vishnu, what do you think about that game against uh, Sevilla? Um, I think as long as we can, I think like not concede. I don't care anything else. I don't care about anything else other than getting our defense sorted. So as, as long as we can get the defense sorted. So you would take a nil-nil draw against Sevilla. Oh no, we'll score for sure. That's a given. Guys, I want, want, to, I want everyone to note. I want everyone, everyone to note the Vishnu tactical master masterclass. If we don't concede, we're okay. Then it's all good. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was, I was gonna say that. Guys, this is what, what Premier League managers have failed to write <laughs> a book about this. If we don't concede, I think that's the classic Mourinho line. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mourinho's uh, whole career is built on those words. Yeah. Yeah. As, as long, long as you don't concede. You can't fall that. You can't fall that. If you don't concede, you don't lose. So, <laughs> so I guess uh, Then we're going to be looking at Lazio versus Dortmund. That looks like a very interesting game, actually. And uh, Ajax-Liverpool, hopefully that will be good. I don't want to see Liverpool like you know just burst through Ajax. I don't expect to see that. Well, we'll Ajax are always fun to watch. And finally, we'll finish off uh, with Bayern versus Atletico Madrid, which should be a really good game. That attacking power of Bayern versus like the absolute boring defensive scenes of uh, Simeone, it should be a very uh, good game to watch. Definitely, definitely. Well, I am excited and I hope to catch you guys for that part. Definitely, we will. We when we're going to do that on Thursday. That's probably going to come out on Thursday. Yeah, or Friday. I think. Yeah, Thursday or Friday. And then we'll look at the Premier League again, and we'll keep it going. Consistency is key. And uh, yeah, that's it for this this episode of the Off the Line podcast. Thank you guys for joining me again. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for having. Thanks for having me, Caleb. All right then, guys. Have a good one. Peace out, boys.